Hello, my name is Kip Cohn, and I'm coming to you from my family room today. Whether you are a longtime member of the WL Church family, or you're tuning in for the first time ever, I want to welcome you, and I want to wish you a happy Resurrection Sunday. It is kind of an odd Easter weekend, with all of us having to stay at home. I did hear someone just today say, the churches at least the buildings, are empty, but so is the tomb. And because the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, and so is the church. So I want to welcome you today. I've noticed that the coronavirus kind of draws out different emotions from different people. Some people are actually quite okay with the social distancing. The other day, I was driving around down by the lake and I looked out and it was calm and still and I saw four or five fishing boats, each one with one person standing there fishing and they looked rather happy actually. And I imagined in my mind that their wives had kind of gotten tired of them moping around all the time at home and finally said, just go fishing. And here they were out on the calm, still, quiet waters thinking to themselves, this is great. My wife actually asked me to go fishing. This is like heaven on earth. Well, heaven on earth is not how most people are experiencing the coronavirus. I think for many people, the coronavirus provokes a deep sense of sorrow and loss. Uh, plans, hopes, expectations, they're having to be postponed or even canceled. I mean, I even think of uh, little girls who aren't going to be able to wear their frilly, beautiful new Easter dress at church this Sunday. Of course, there are college and high school seniors, and an important phase of their life is coming to an end, and they're not going to have the kind of closure with their friends that they had hoped for or expected. I know of couples who are either postponing their wedding or they're getting married without a big wedding service or a reception. And you know, those are all really real losses, a real sense of sorrow attached to that. But all of those are nothing compared to the grief some people are experiencing at the loss of loved ones and family members. There is a deep pain because there's an absence there. That's a true loss, a real sense of sorrow. So grief is one emotion that the coronavirus elicits, brings out in us. Another people, other people um, feel fear. The whole coronavirus surfaces fear in their hearts and minds. Um, a fear of contracting the virus, a fear of losing a job or not being able to find a job when it's all over, a fear of not being able to make ends meet, a fear that things will never be the same. There's just a lot of fears that people have. I don't know if you've been to the grocery store lately, but it's surreal. I mean, there's a palpable sense of apprehension. You could kind of cut it with a knife. And so fear is one emotion that is really gripping people's hearts. Lastly, I think uh, some people are kind of confirmed in their sense of cynicism about life. Uh, they're just sensing uh, what they already feel that life is kind of random, it's cruel, it's meaningless. Um, they begin to have these intellectual doubts about God, his goodness, his grace, even his existence. And times like these, they kind of make faith or break faith and because it raises a lot of questions, a lot of doubts 
in people's minds. So grief and sorrow, fear and apprehension, and questions and doubts. Those are kind of three primary emotions that the coronavirus elicits in people. What I find immensely fascinating is that these are exactly the same three emotions that Christ's crucifixion, Christ's death, raises in his followers, his disciples. Mary Magdalene was filled with sorrow. The disciples, they were filled with fear, and Thomas was filled with doubt. And what the resurrected Christ does is he enters into all those emotions and he transforms them. He completely changes them. We want to look at how he did that. And we want to do that because I believe that Jesus wants to do the same thing in our hearts. He wants to enter into our emotions in relation to the whole coronavirus and he wants to transform them. So let's take a look at this. It's in John chapter 20. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, if you haven't already, John chapter 20. We read this in verses 1 and 2. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And she jumps to a conclusion here. She makes an assumption. She doesn't investigate. We'll see what she does. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and John respond to this news by running off to the tomb to investigate. And Mary kind of stumbles slowly after them. She's just overwhelmed and overcome by grief and sorrow and a deep sense of loss. And she's crying and she's weeping. Why, why, why did she feel such a sense of loss at the death of Christ? Well, as you look back, you see some years before uh, Mary, who was called the Magdalene because she came from a little fishing village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. A few years before, Jesus had come through her town and he had radically transformed her life. He had changed her life completely. You see, uh, she had been possessed by seven demons, evil spirits, and they tormented her and tortured her. And Jesus, uh, he set her free from that bondage, from that emotional, that physical, that mental, that spiritual bondage, Christ set her free. And in her new freedom and in her new faith in Jesus, she chose to follow uh, Christ. She became part of Christ's small group of disciples. And uh, she was one of those women, a small group of women who supported Jesus with their money, but also by serving him. From that day on, Mary went everywhere that Jesus went. She followed him on that long last journey to Jerusalem. And all four gospel writers make sure to mention that Mary stayed near to the cross when Jesus was crucified. When just about everybody else had abandoned Jesus, Mary stayed right there. And she suffered with his suffering, with his labored breath, she winced. And when he finally cried out, it is finished, her heart broke. She didn't understand that the forgiveness that she had received from Jesus had a price, had a cost, and Jesus was paying that price right then and there. And when the Roman soldiers came along and shoved the spear into Jesus's side, 
and the blood and the water flowed out. It was as if her hope flowed right out of her. She stayed and watched as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body down from the cross and buried in a tomb. She strained to get one last glimpse of his lifeless body before they rolled the stone in front of the tomb's door. She was the first one there on Sunday morning. She wanted to serve her master one more time by completing the burial process. But now, even that was taken away from her. Another loss, salt in the wound, sorrow upon sorrow. We pick up the story in verse 11 because everything's about to change. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. She didn't recognize him possibly because of the tears in her eyes, or maybe because she wasn't looking for him. She couldn't expect him. Her mind couldn't even begin to comprehend or imagine that this could be Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Of course, Jesus knew the answer. And he also knew something that she didn't yet, something that was going to radically revolutionize her whole perspective on everything. Jesus asked her, who is it you are looking for? That's an interesting question. Who are you looking for? Are you looking for a dead body? Or are you looking for a living Lord? If you're looking for a living Lord, you may actually find him. You'll see him. You'll recognize him. I think Jesus might ask us that same question too. Who are you looking for? If we're looking for the living Lord, we will find him. Back to verse 15. Thinking he was the gardener, Mary said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Mary is so overcome with grief and sorrow that she can't see beyond the pain. She, she can't uh, lift her eyes and recognize the bigger perspective, the broader perspective, the brighter hope that is standing right in front of her. Of course, that's a temptation for us too in these days, that we get so focused on the sorrow and the loss of the moment that we lose perspective on the bigger, broader, brighter truth that is right in front of us. Well, Mary's whole perspective is about to change. She's going to be transformed her grief is going to turn to joy. Uh, her darkness is going to be illuminated, exploded with brilliant light. And it only took one word, just one word to propel her from the depths of despair to the height of joy. But it's really not the word itself. Instead, it's the voice. Look at this, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Oh, I would love to have seen Mary's face in this moment. When I get to heaven, I'm going to rent that DVD. I want to see that episode. Uh, it's like all those um, 
videos that you can see on YouTube of soldiers who surprise their wife or kids or family coming back earlier or unexpectedly. And you see the, the wild and unexpected shock of joy on the faces of family members. Well, you take all of those together and you put them on steroids and this is the joyful response that you get from Mary. She has now recognized his voice. And what is happening here is what Jesus talked about earlier when he said this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. The sheep listen to my voice. My sheep follow me because they know my voice. Mary recognized the voice of her good shepherd. Can it be true? Is it real? And it was. You know, this is one of the happiest moments in the Gospels. And um, it just makes me happy. This happiness kind of cascades and floods down through the years to us today. Every time I read it, it makes me happy. It makes me happy for Mary. It makes me happy for me. It makes me happy for everyone who has put their hope in Jesus because he is alive. And so he's transformed her mourning into joy. And now instead of being a mourner, he's going to make her into a messenger because he doesn't just replace her sadness, her sorrow, her loss with joy and gladness. He actually gives her a message. He gives her a mission. He sends her uh, to tell the disciples all this good news. Look what we read in verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And what he's saying to her is, don't hang on to me. I'm not going anywhere. I haven't ascended yet to the Father for good. That's coming, but I'll be around for a while. Don't worry. You'll see me again. So you don't have to hold on to me like I'm leaving. Instead, what you need to do is go to the disciples and tell them what you now know, that I am alive. That is good news. And really, there's nothing more fun than sharing good news. And this is the best news of all. And I don't think Mary Magdalene ever got tired of sharing this good news that completely transformed and changed her life forever. This good news that death, sorrow, sadness, loss, don't get the last word. Jesus is alive. The resurrection has triumphed over all those things. That is good news. I think we should also be filled with that gladness, that joy that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. That gives us the hope of eternal life. This is a news that we want to share with others with gladness and joy. Well, what about the disciples? Mary Magdalene was filled with sorrow and loss. Of course, the disciples too were filled with sorrow and loss at the death of Jesus. But an emotion that kind of uh, rises to the surface for them that's very prominent is fear. Look at these next verses, starting with verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, there you have it. They were locked behind closed doors out of fear. If the Jewish leaders had been able to get Jesus crucified, what were they going to do to them, his followers? I mean, were they going to pick them off one by one? What they had done to Jesus, they could just as easily do to Peter and John and James and the others. And so they were terrified for their lives and they didn't know what to do. 
everything had changed over a weekend and they didn't know what to do. What are we supposed to do next? Where do we go from here? I think of all the Easter's in my life, this is the one where we can maybe most closely identify with those disciples. I mean, think about it. Just a month ago, uh, unemployment was at record lows. The stock market was at record highs and everything was kind of going like you would hope or expect it to go. And now a month later, unemployment at record highs, the stock market going crazy, uh, nobody really knowing when this whole thing is going to end and what it's going to mean for the future. What are the ramifications, the consequences of all of this? And a question of what, what are we supposed to do now? We can really relate to kind of the fear that the disciples were feeling. But the good thing is that Jesus enters right into that fear. He comes right into that moment and he's going to transform it forever. Look at verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside, probably just to confirm his identity. It's really me. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Jesus is picking up here right where he left off on the night before he died. He told his disciples, you need to live out of my peace. It's a peace not like the world gives you. It's a peace that I can give you. What exactly is that peace that Jesus is talking about? The peace Jesus offers is a whole new quality of life. It's the wholeness and completeness that comes with a restored, reconciled relationship with God. And that's what Jesus has to offer. You see, on the cross, Jesus took upon himself everything that separated us from his Father. He took all the sin and he took the punishment for sin that separated us from God. And now as the resurrected Lord, he can offer us a restored relationship with God. And this relationship, that is our peace, peace with God, a whole complete reconciled relationship with God forever. And the most beautiful and powerful thing about it is that nothing can touch it. Nothing can touch or change this peace that Jesus offers us with his father. Pastor Bruce read these verses a couple weeks ago. I want to read them again because they so eloquently speak to the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ that no trouble, no trial, no problem, no coronavirus can even touch. We read this in Romans chapter 8. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not even the coronavirus and all of its consequences, can separate us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not only does Jesus offer peace to his frightened disciples, he transforms their fear into a, a sense of peace rooted in a restored relationship with his father. But just as he had done with Mary Magdalene, he gives his disciples also a purpose, a mission, and a message. Look what he says to them in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The Father had sent Jesus into the world in order to purchase peace between us and God. 
And now Jesus says to his followers, his disciples, I'm sending you into the world to proclaim, to tell other people, to share this good news of peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so they now go from being frightened followers of Jesus Christ to being filled with his peace, filled with a message of peace for the world. Be reconciled to God. And you know what? All those disciples did lose their lives sharing that, but they weren't afraid at all because they knew they had a peace with God that was greater and stronger and more powerful than death itself. Nothing could touch it. That is real peace. Well, one of the disciples was not there when Jesus showed up. And that's the third conversation in John chapter 20. We read this in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I just don't believe it, Thomas said. And we would probably be pushing things a little too far if we tried to make him into a modern skeptic, a new atheist, if you will. He was just kind of a down-to-earth, common-sense, call-it-like-I-see-it skeptic. The whole attitude of, I won't believe it until I see it, has been around forever. And it's still around today. Ever since the fall of mankind, we have trusted our sight more than God's revelation of himself. We've been more comfortable with evidence, with proof, than with faith. Well, in this instance, Jesus is going to oblige Thomas. And we read this. A week later... His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. You know, when we read that, we don't think too much about it. It's hard for us to grasp just how immense this statement was coming from Thomas. In no uncertain terms, he was unequivocally calling Jesus God. He was saying that Jesus was worthy of the same worship, adoration, and obedience that God the Father was worthy of. That's an immense, that's a huge statement. And so we see here that Thomas goes from doubting to becoming a proclaimer of the truth of who Jesus is. Someone who declares that boldly, someone who professes that. Instead of being paralyzed with fear and doubting, uh, the disciples now were boldly proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus continues to talk with Thomas, but these next words were actually meant for you and for me. This is what Jesus says in verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, you and I, we don't have the opportunity, like Thomas, to see the resurrected Christ physically with our physical eyes. 
And yet Jesus has left lots of evidence so that we can believe with our spiritual eyes. Jesus left an empty tomb. He left the witness, the eyewitness of his first followers. He left his message, his teachings of truth, of grace, of love. And he left his Holy Spirit who has been transforming lives over these last couple of millennia. And all of that together is plenty to be able to believe with our spiritual eyes that Jesus is Lord and God, to believe that he resurrected from the dead, that he is alive. What is the foundation for a joy greater than our sorrows, for a peace that is stronger than our fears, and for a faith that outdistances our doubts? Well, John gives that basis, that foundation to us in the last verse of the chapter, in verse 31. This is what we read there. But these, talking about all the miracles in this whole Gospel of John, culminating in the resurrection itself, the ultimate miracle, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The resurrected Lord wants to give us life. And not just a life of breaths. You know, the coronavirus can steal our breath. Jesus wants to give us eternal life. And eternal life has to do with more than the duration of life or the quantity of life. Eternal life has to do with the quality of life. And this quality of life is rooted in a restored, renewed, reconciled relationship with God. And Jesus has the right and the authority and the power to give us this eternal life because he laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. You know, there is a virus that is much more powerful and deadly than the coronavirus. And the name of that virus is sin. And it has infected all of us. Sin is the real enemy because sin brings judgment. But on the cross, Jesus took that judgment upon himself and then he resurrected triumphant over sin, death, and Satan so that now all who trust in him as Savior and Lord, who entrust their lives to him, will be saved, will be forgiven, will experience a restored, renewed relationship with God. And it's out of this restored relationship that we have a joy that is greater than our sorrows. We have a peace that is stronger than our fears. And we have a belief, a faith that outdistances our doubts. My prayer for you is that today, you will put your trust and faith in this Jesus who can give you eternal life. If you need some help talking about that, thinking through that, praying about that, I really encourage you, even right now, to go to our website and on the homepage you'll find a button called Need Prayer or Have a Question. And if you fill that out, uh, one of the pastors at our church will get right back with you because we really want to talk with you about the hope that we have in the resurrected Lord and this eternal life that he offers us, this, this incredible peace that nothing can touch, not even death. 
We are going to close our worship service today with a song of praise and thanksgiving to God for the wonderful, joyful news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before we do that, we're going to take a couple moments to pause and to listen and to pray. I encourage you where you're at to pray quietly or uh, to pray out loud with those you are with.
I would like to thank you again for joining us today for Resurrection Sunday. I hope that your heart has been encouraged and blessed and comforted with the good news of the resurrection. I pray that the peace of God will rule and reign in your hearts through Christ Jesus. If you have a prayer request to share or you'd like to talk with a pastor, I encourage you to go even right now to our website and click on that need prayer, have a question tab and fill that out and we will get right back with you. I want to wish you a great Resurrection Sunday and a time uh, to celebrate uh, wherever you're at. And let's just close our time with prayer. Would you join me? Father God, we just praise you and thank you for your goodness towards us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus has entered into our world and entered into all of our emotions in this world and that his resurrection really transforms those things and gives us a whole new perspective. I pray that the joy of the resurrection would triumph over our sorrows. I pray that the peace that we have with you through Jesus Christ would um, be stronger than the fears that we face right now. I pray that our faith would be strengthened and that it would uh, outlast the questions and the doubts and that we'd even grow through all of that. I pray that you would be glorified by our attitudes, by our faith. And God, we just want to praise you and thank you again for Jesus Christ. He is truly our Lord and God, and we praise you for him. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.